Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is David, and I have the privilege of serving here at Trinity as lead pastor and teaching on most Sunday mornings. I hope you had a great week. It was, uh, I felt like this week in Syracuse was like a microcosm of our winter so far, right? There was one blast of snow, there was a few really cold days, and then there was one random spring-like day that gave us all hope just to keep going, right? Like, in Syracuse, it's funny, in the winter, if it gets over 40, we're like, yeah, it feels so warm. It gets over 40, I see people driving with the windows down, wearing shorts out, having picnics. It's like, as soon as it gets over 40, we're all, we're all excited. And, and uh, so I hope you had a great week. Also, this past week was Valentine's Days, Valentine's Day. Husbands, if this is the first you're hearing of it, you're in trouble. Uh, I hope you guys had a great Valentine's Day. You know, the thing with Valentine's Day is there's a lot of pressure a lot of pressure that comes with Valentine's Day. A lot of, a lot of pressure to, to prove your love for someone or for someone's. And, uh, you know, just this past Thursday, Americans spent over $30 billion to prove their love to someone else. $30 billion. That's a lot of uh, overpriced candy and overpriced flowers, isn't it? $30 billion. The average American spent $220. So now you can determine whether you're average or not. But the average American spent over $220 uh, to prove their love. And my, my girls, I have three little girls, uh, and of course my wife, and, and we were talking about Valentine's Day, and I said to Lilia and Caroline and Madeline, I said, we can, uh, we can, we, we can go get you something for Valentine's Day. Or we can wait till Friday when all the candy's 50% off. <laughs> and then you can get twice as much. And they're just, my wife's very pragmatic, very practical, and my girls are the same. Or they're greedy. I don't know which one it is. But they were like, yes, let's wait. So on Friday, we were in Target picking through the clearance, finding all the 50% off chocolates. But, you know, a lot of people did a lot of things on Thursday to prove their love to someone else. How do we prove our love for God? How do we prove that we love God? There's certain things that people do. They think this will prove that I love God. Maybe it's their personal devotion. Maybe it's their private spiritual disciplines, their moral living, their religious activities. And maybe some of you are even here this morning. You're thinking, well, this is why I'm here, to prove that I love God. That's why I came to church. That's why I just stood and sang. That's why I just put something in the offering plate. That's why I'm listening to you instead of sitting at home and relaxing and taking, uh, sleeping in. How do we prove our love for God? What if it's possible that we can do all of those things I just said and not actually love God? What if it's possible? And this morning, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. We're going through the Gospel of Luke. And this is one of his most famous stories. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably have heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, Jesus does us a great favor. He shows us what it looks like to love God. He shows us here is the proof that you actually love God. Not just that you say it, not just that you sing it, not just that you wear t-shirts that proclaim it, but here's the actual proof that you love God. And he, and he does it in a really interesting way. He does it by redefining a word for us, a word that's very, very familiar. And in one remarkable story, Jesus redefines the word neighbor in two remarkable ways. And we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to walk through the story together, and then I'll share, you the, share with you the two ways that Jesus redefines the word neighbor. So we're in Luke chapter 10. I'm reading to you from the ESV. It should be on your handout. Also, it'll be on the screens for you. And of course, if you have your Bible, that's a great way to follow along too. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. We're going to kind of walk our way through the story a verse at a time. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this lawyer is not like lawyers today. It's not the same thing. This lawyer was probably an expert in the law, a Jewish man, specifically an expert in Jewish law, uh, religious law. He was a Jewish scribe, and he was probably a very highly respected, high learned person. And he stands up to ask this question. And in our society today, if somebody stands up in a room to ask a question, it might seem threatening. It might seem like it's a position of disrespect. But actually, in this uh, Jewish culture, it was a position of respect. Because back when Jesus walked the earth, the teacher would not stand like I am this morning. The teacher would actually be seated. And if you stood to ask a question, it was a, it was a position of respect for the teacher. However, we know from this verse, this man didn't actually have a heart of respect towards Jesus because it said, why did he actually ask the question? He wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to trap Jesus. So what we see here at the very beginning is this expert in the law takes a position of respect, but he has no actual respect in his heart towards Jesus. I don't know how many of you have ever had somebody say something to you and preface it with something like this. No disrespect, but, my favorite is, no offense, but, you know whatever's coming after the but is gonna offend you. It's like, I wanna say to my friends, you know that doesn't mean you can just say whatever you want next. Like, that doesn't get you off the hook. I still heard the rest of your sentence, but that's kind of what's happening here. And he says, "What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the emphasis of the question when you study it in the Greek is, what is the one thing, what can I do to save myself? Which right off the bat, we get this sense that he doesn't really understand what it means to follow Jesus. Because at the heart of the gospel is not the question, what can I do to save myself? The question is, what did Jesus do to save me? They're very different questions. And so Jesus answers him in verse 26, and he says, what is written in the law? He points him back to the Old Testament. What is written in the law and how do you read it? And the lawyer answers. And here the lawyer is quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, kind of combining his answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. It's the Shema. It's this Hebrew call to love God and your neighbor as yourself. So two things, love God with everything and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And then Jesus says to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly. You got it right. Do this and you will live. This was actually a little bit embarrassing for the scribe because what Jesus said to him basically was, you just asked a question you already knew the answer to. You already knew the answer. Your problem is you're not living that way. You are confessionally saying something, but functionally you're living a different way. So Jesus basically calls him out and says, you already knew the answer. You just got to go do it now. It was a little embarrassing for this guy. And this was this guy's opportunity. Every now and then in, in conflict and in conversations, there's a window where you can sit down and shut up and spare yourself further embarrassment. Most of us don't take it. We just keep going. And just like us, this lawyer keeps going. And he asks this question in verse 29, desiring to justify himself. That idea of justifying himself, he wanted to justify the way that he lived. He wanted to feel good about the person that he was and the way that he lived. Desiring to justify himself, he said to the Jesus, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? One of the things that I started doing this uh, fall is I started teaching a class. I'm an adjunct professor at an uh, online course at a small university outside of Philly. And it's interesting, as I interact with the students, um, first off, it's the first time I've ever received emails that say, Professor Hurtwick at the top. It's very strange. <laughs> Very strange. Um, but the other thing is they ask lots of questions about the assignments. And they're always asking, like, basically, tell me exactly what I have to do. 
And the reason why they're asking that question, and I respect this because I was actually this type of student, to be honest, they don't want to go above and beyond. Like they want to know what are, what's expected of me because I don't want to do anything above and beyond it. So while they're asking, what do you want me to do? What they're really asking is, please tell me all the things I don't have to do. That's what's happening here. This man says, who is my neighbor? But here's the question he really wants the answer to. Who isn't my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? Who am I off the hook with? And when he asked, who is my neighbor, at this time in Jewish history, especially reading from the Old Testament, many of them would have thought, well, this is just about Israel, right? People who are like me, people who are the same ethnicity of me, people who have the same religious beliefs as me. Or some of them would say, it's not even all of Israel. It's just the faithful of Israel. It's the, really, it's the cream of the crop. It's the best. They're my neighbors, right? It can't be everyone. And here's what the Lord is saying. Come on, Jesus, where do we draw the line? Love everyone? That's crazy. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a story. This is a famous story. It begins in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the reason why it says down is because Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 825 feet below sea level. That's why the word down is there. Jerusalem was much more elevated, so he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a famous journey that the listeners would have known, but you and I don't know it this morning, so I want to explain it to you. This was an 18-mile windy journey through dangerous mountains from 2,600 feet elevation to 800 below, so a 3,400 feet change in elevation. You know how elevation affects you? You ever been affected by elevation? In 2000, I went on a mission trip to Quito, Ecuador, and Quito is uh, a mile high, so it's, the elevation is really, really high. I remember the first day we were there, we stopped at this place called Gus's Chicken Shack. Uh, I, I have a memory for where I eat. Uh, Gus's Chicken Shack, and it was great. And we were all in there eating. There was about 25 of us, and the missionary ran into the chicken shack, and he goes, hey, um, there's an opportunity for us to go set up and do our play. We had this play that we did to go do our play. So let's go now. So we all like, you know, we're all finishing our chicken as fast as we can, cramming it in our pockets. And we run onto the bus and we take off and we get to where we're going, which is about a mile and a half away. And we, we all start to change into our drama costumes. And we look around and all of a sudden I hear someone go, where's Becky? Where's Sabrina? There's two 15-year-old girls from our church that I'd brought on the trip. And I was like, what? And we realized we left them in Gus's chicken shack. It was our first day in Quito, Ecuador. So me and the other pastor, Pastor Dan, we were like, we couldn't really move the whole bus. So it was, we were like, it's only a mile and a half away. We're just going to run there. <laughs> first off, neither one of us was in great shape. But if you ever try to run at that sort of elevation, you're not used to it. Like literally a block later, we were like, they'll be okay. They'll be fine. <laughs> We started walking because we just couldn't run anymore. We were going to pass out if we ran. We got there and they were safe, thank God. But here, here are these people, are, uh, they're journeying from 2,600 feet to 800 feet. It's a, it, they're, so they're, they're winded, they're tired, they're exhausted, and it's dangerous. And all along the way in these mountains are these little caves. Uh, and these caves were where robbers would hide. And so it, Jesus goes on to say that he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, okay? So they didn't just rob him, they beat him, and they left him half dead and naked. Verse 31, it says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. 
Let's talk for a second about the priest and the Levite. Priests were the religious leaders uh, in, in, in uh, Israel. They served in the temple. They made the sacrifices. They were the pastors. They were the, they were the clergy. Um, they were the ones who, you know, many of them served in Jerusalem but lived outside of Jerusalem. In fact, the most of them actually did live in Jericho. So this story that Jesus is telling is one that people would have understood. The priests have done their duty in uh, Jerusalem, and now they're headed home to Jericho. And they see him, and they, they see this man lying there half dead, and they pass by him. The Levites were kind of like a step below the priests. They were like the assistants. They assisted in all sorts of practical manners. Sometimes they were the musicians or the gatekeepers, or they even sometimes would teach from the Torah. They're sort of like a jack of all trades. And they both saw him. In fact, the text indicates that the Levite actually came close to him to get a better look, saw him, and neither one of them stopped, and neither one of them helped, and they both walked by. Well, why? There's a few reasons why. Uh, one reason is there was a law in Jewish culture about cleanliness. Cleanliness was a big deal to the Jewish people, especially ceremonial cleanliness, and especially if you were clergy. Because if you became unclean, you couldn't do the practices and the religious services that you were supposed to do. And one of the things that would make you unclean would be touching someone who was bleeding, and someone who was dying, and especially someone who was dead. So some people think, well, the priest and the Levite took a look at this person and was like, well, if I help them, I'm not going to be able to help all these other people. And I have more important things to do, and I don't want to risk making myself unclean. Now, some people say that's, that may not be a good excuse because if you notice, they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which meant they had just finished their work. They actually were going home. So they probably were okay. But also, there was laws back then that told them that the highest good is to help people who are hurting. So even if they use that as an excuse, it was a made-up excuse. And, and don't we all do that? We make up excuses for why we don't do what we do, why we do do what we do. We make up excuses, and that's what's happening here. Maybe they didn't stop because they thought, hey, look what happened to this dude. Why would I stop here? This is a pretty dangerous spot. Maybe they thought this is going to cost me something. This is going to endanger me, so I'm not going to stop. And maybe they just were indifferent. Maybe they just looked, and they, they'd seen this all the time. This was a dangerous road. People were getting beat up and robbed all the time. They just said, there's another guy. It's his fault, maybe they thought. He should know this is a dangerous road. He shouldn't be traveling alone. This is actually on him. But whatever the motivation is, they walk past him. And at this point in the story that Jesus is telling, everyone who was listening thought they knew what was coming next. Actually, they thought they knew who was coming next. Because there was actually a Semitic story form that was very popular back then. And a lot of people didn't like the clergy. And so what they expected was that Jesus was going to kind of, um, you know, correct the clergy. So what they were expecting was this. The priest walked by, didn't help him. The Levite walked by, didn't help him. And here's what the whole audience expected. They expected the next person to be average, average Joe, Jewish person. And the whole point was going to be to kind of like slap the clergy in the face and say, see, you guys aren't doing it, so the average Israelite is doing what you should be doing, and everybody would have approved, and everybody would have applauded. But what Jesus said probably literally caused the crowd to gasp. Here's what he says in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. A Samaritan. Now, the hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans had gone back for over 400 years before this story was told. And it centered on the issue of racial impurity or racial purity. Because while the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people had kept what they would consider their purity by not intermarrying. 
But the Samaritans had lost their quote-unquote purity by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. So, excuse the term, but this is how they would have felt. The Jew, in the Jewish eyes, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were compromising mongrels. They were, they, they, there, was a, there was a racial tension here. There was a superiority, inferiority complex going on here. And there was an intense hatred. Um, the Samaritans had actually built a rival temple. Uh, to rival the temple in Jerusalem on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. And during the, the reign of Maccabees, uh, the Jewish people had actually gone and destroyed the temple because they were so upset about this. Actually, earlier, just the previous chapter, James and John, two of Jesus' closest followers, asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven to destroy some inhospitable Samaritans. In Jesus' day, the hatred, I mean the hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, it was ingrained and it was intense. I remember in 2004 and 2006, I took lead teams over to Belfast, Northern Ireland. And if you know anything about the history of Northern Ireland, you know it's a war-torn country. And I remember uh, the Catholics and the Protestants and the, you know, the or- the, some sidewalks are painted orange and some sidewalks are painted green. And you better know which sidewalk you're walking on because you can get in trouble if you're on the wrong sidewalk. And they have these things called peace walls, which they look nothing like peaceful walls because they're just these huge walls with like barbed wire at the top separating neighborhoods. I remember talking to some of the children and some of the teenagers and saying, hey, tell me a little bit about why uh, you don't go in that neighborhood. And they said, well, they're Catholics or they're Protestants. We don't have anything to do with them. We hate them. And then when we asked them why, most of them would say, I don't know. I don't actually know why we don't like them. It's just ingrained, right? So for 400 years, Samaritans and the Jews had hated each other. It's just ingrained. Nobody questioned it. Everybody just embraced it. And so when Jesus said that a Samaritan came along next, everybody thought that the next sentence out of Jesus' mouth was going to be, and finished him off. Like, that's really what they expected. The Samaritan came along and finished him off and killed the man and went on his way. But when Jesus said that the Samaritan felt compassion, it must have rocked that crowd. Because they thought, they were taught growing up, don't even eat the bread of the Samaritans. There was a saying, to eat the bread of the Samaritans is like eating the flesh of pigs, which of course Jewish people would not eat. Uh, Recently, Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria, and some of the Samaritans had come and defiled the Jewish temple by throwing human bones in there. So, I mean, there was an intense thing going on here. And you can imagine the shock of the crowd when Jesus introduces the Samaritan, not as the villain, but as the hero. Let's Let's keep reading and see what the Samaritan did. Verse 34, it says, the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This would have been for medicinal purposes. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which was two days worth of salary, which would have purchased this guy about 24 days worth of food. And he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Look at how much it costs the Samaritan to take care of this stranger, to be a neighbor to this half-dead Jewish man. He spent his own oil. He spent his own wine. He gave up his own, his own animal. He was riding on this horse or this donkey, you know, making pretty good time getting through the mountains. He put himself at risk. He, you know, he was slowed down significantly. He was more at danger now. And then he took him to the inn, and not only did he get him that far and then say, here you are, I've done my part, he paid up front for another 24 days worth of care, and then even said, if it goes beyond that, on my way back through, I'll take care of it. It's amazing what this Samaritan does. And then Jesus asked the lawyer a question, verse 36, and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, now you go and do likewise. This is the second time Jesus is telling the man, you got the answer right. Now just go do it. Just go live this way. What we see in this story is that Jesus redefines the word neighbor in two ways. Now, how do we define the word neighbor? I was thinking about this this week. I think there's, I want to give you three words. Um, They're not in your notes, but three words. I think this is how we define neighbor. The first word is this, commonality. Commonality. We tend to define neighbor by people that we have things in common with. People who are like us. People who like us. People who think like us, vote like us, look like us, eat the food we eat, go to the places that we go. That's how we tend to think of like, this is, my, this is someone that I'm connected to, commonality. The second word is this, proximity. Okay, so my neighbors are people who are close to me, and geographically, like next door to me. We live in the suburbs, so we have neighbors all around us, and, and these are our neighbors. And, and maybe if we're generous, we say, well, the whole street's my neighbor. Or maybe we say, all of Pine Gate, they're all our neighbors, whatever it is. But we tend to define it by proximity. And then the third word, and this is kind of newer to us today, is the word technology. We maybe think, well, our neighbors are not necessarily people who I have everything in common with, not necessarily only people I live near, but it's anyone I'm connected with. My Facebook friends, people that follow me on Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever it is, these are my neighbors. And so you have these three words, think about it, commonality, proximity, and technology. And none of them are bad, but none of them are how Jesus defines neighbor here, right? None of them are. And how does Jesus define neighbor? And what we learn here is that Jesus defines neighbor by a different word. It's the word opportunity. Neighbor is defined by opportunity. When you have the opportunity to serve someone, to help someone, to meet a need, to love someone, then they immediately become your neighbor. The Samaritan had very little in common with the Jewish man, but the opportunity came along for him to help him. And in that moment, he saw him as his neighbor. The Samaritan comes across this opportunity to be a neighbor and he responds with mercy. There's, old, there's an older retired pastor who's a kind of a legend in New York, at least in, our, in the churches that we're connected with, Brother Bar- Bartholomew. Maybe some of you have heard him preach. We call him Brother B for short. And he was preaching this text one time, this story, and he said it so succinctly. He said this, the robbers came along and said, what is yours is mine. I'll take it. The priest and the Levite came along and looked at him and said, what is mine is mine. I'll keep it. And then the Samaritan came along and said, what is mine is yours you can have it. Isn't that good? Better than my sermon, right? We should have just, we should have just done that. We should have just done that. What, what, is, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. What is mine is mine, I'll keep it. And what is mine is yours, you can have it. When there's the opportunity to say, what is mine is yours. Because here's one of the beautiful things about loving Jesus. Jesus has the power to set your heart free in such a way that the things that you think you have, you can give them away because they don't define you anymore. And when the things that you have define you, they actually have you, don't they? You don't have them. They have you. They control you. You don't control them. And Jesus has a way of freeing our hearts from being defined by anything other than his perfect love for us and his work on our behalf. So now we're free to open up our hands and open up our hearts and say, what is mine is yours. You can have it. There was nothing in common between the Samaritan and this Jewish man. In fact, not only was there nothing in common, but this was his natural enemy. And he loved him and he showed mercy. And when we read this story, we have to stop and ask this question. Today, if we were telling this story in the Christian evangelical American church, who would the Samaritan be? Who would the Samaritan be? Who would we pick? Who would we choose? Who's the type of person out there? 
Who's that person that we say, not them. I'll love them and I'll love them and I'll love them, but I will not love them. Do you know what they think? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they posted on Facebook last week? Like, you know, there are people. And here's, here's, here's your clue as to who that person is for you. You don't even want to say them out. You don't even want to say their name out loud. You don't even want to say it. Did you notice that when Jesus said to the lawyer, which one proved to be a neighbor? What was the shortest answer that the guy should have given? The Samaritan. He couldn't even say it. He couldn't even bring himself to spit the words out because he's, some study said, well, the one who showed him mercy. What's the type of person? I, it's, it's different for all of us. I mean, I know you guys are all different. I follow you online. You all have very different beliefs <laughs> on different things. I think it's good. It makes us more diverse, makes us better. It's fine. But there may be someone in this room, actually, who if you knew everything they thought about everything out there, you would go, ah, not them. How am I in a church with that person when they think this and I think this? Jesus is doing something radical here. He's saying, let's not define neighbor based on commonality, proximity, and even today, technology. Let's define it by opportunity. If you have the opportunity to do good, do it. Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So earlier we said, what is the proof that we love God? The proof that we love God is this. It's our love for others. It's our love for our enemies. It's our love for those who have nothing in common with us. It's our love for those that when we see them suffering, we go, well, they probably got what they deserve. Do you know how they live? They brought that on themselves. That's their mess. They should get themselves out of it. That's the sort of heart that the priest and the Levite carried. Jesus is radically challenging our hearts and redefining neighbor. Okay, let me finish up. The second thing he does here, and this is um, nuanced, so let me explain it. Jesus changes neighbor from a noun to a verb. To Jesus, neighbor is a verb, not a noun. And I didn't know this until I was studying this text this week and reading some commentaries, and they said Jesus does something very nuanced in the end of the story. It's very interesting. When the lawyer says, who is my neighbor, that word is definitively a noun. And when you think of neighbors as nouns, here's what you think. Who is the one to whom I owe something? Uh, this burdensome uh, responsibility that the lawyer wants to avoid. When a neighbor is only a noun, then you try to figure out who is a neighbor and who isn't a neighbor. But Jesus actually uses neighbor in a way that sort of in the Greek turns it into a verb. And he's actually saying, how do you neighbor other people? How are you neighboring those around you? And when neighbor is a verb, instead of trying to figure out who is your neighbor and who isn't your neighbor, now you ask this question, how can I love and serve those who are in need? And in the kingdom of God, one does not just have some neighbors. One is learning to be a neighbor to all, learning to neighbor all. So think of neighbor this way. How are you neighboring the people in your life? How are you neighboring them? How are you showing them love and mercy and how much is it costing you? Because if it's not costing you anything to neighbor the people in your life, then you're not, you're not doing what this guy was doing. What is it costing you? Let me finish with some application for us. What does it look like to neighbor people in our church here at Trinity? I wrote a list of things. Here's some things we do to neighbor people. We, we make the effort to introduce ourselves. I guarantee you there's someone in this room you don't know their name because I don't know everybody's name in this room. So, on Sunday mornings, we make the effort. We don't just make a beeline to our seat, sit down, wait for the service, get our service on, head out, and take. We make that effort. We say, I, I, I want to introduce myself. We ask great questions 
I love people that ask great questions. There's so few of them, honestly. But we, we ask great questions of people. We, we, we bring curiosity into uh, the conversation. We, we push away, here's a challenging one. We push away from the usual suspects that we spend all our time with on Sundays so that we can connect with and meet and, and know other people. We, we shift from friendliness to friendship. I'm not just going to be a friendly person on Sunday, but I'm going to come in with the heart of friendship. And one, one practical thing is like, one of the things I would challenge people, especially people who have been a part of this church for a long time, is uh, once a month, would you, consider, would you consider this? Once a month, come to church that Sunday with the mindset, I'm going to invite somebody to lunch afterwards. Somebody I don't know. Because we're moving from friendliness to friendship. Learning people's stories. Preferring people over yourself, bandaging their wounds, even though it costs you something, providing ongoing care, even if it costs, taking advantage of smaller connection groups than Sunday morning. You know, we have those. We offer those. Tomorrow night, our women will be meeting here out in the cafe from 6.30 to 8. They do that the third Monday of every month unless they have an other uh, event planned. The men have breakfast on second Saturday. The men have basketball the last Sunday night. There's lots of different things going on. But one of the ways that you can neighbor people is take that step beyond Sunday morning to maybe a Wednesday night grow class. Get into a smaller environment where you can be known and you can know others. And then also, one of the things we're doing as a church this year to try to help us neighbor each other is we're doing something, and next Sunday is the first time we're doing it. It's right after church. It's in the cafe, and it's simply called Meet the Pastors. And we realize that as Trinity grows, and when we go to two services in April, it becomes harder for everybody to see each other. It becomes challenging for everybody to meet the pastors. And so we're going to designate the last Sunday of every other month to say, if you're new, if you're newish in the last couple months, please... <clears throat> Stop by the cafe on your way out, and the pastors are there. We'll have snacks, and we just want to meet people. These are all ways that we can do it. Now, what does it look like to neighbor people outside of the church? Because that's pretty important, too. Again, make the effort to introduce yourself. I'm terrible at this. Like, I fly a lot. I, I flew a lot in my last job. I fly less now. But when I fly, I get on the plane. Like, I just want to, like, put my headphones on. I'm not interested in all the peripheral conversation, and I, I need to get better at that. But some of us are like that. We go through our days... We barely interact with another human being, right? Make the effort to introduce yourself. Ask great questions. Be curious. See every person as an image bearer of God who has value and worth. Learn people's story. Here's another way you can neighbor people outside of the church. Don't try to convert them. Just love them. Just serve them. Just find ways to be the best big brother, best big sister, best friend they've ever had. Invite them to come and see Jesus at work, not just in this church, but in your home and in your life. And when you see needs, meet needs. That's what we're called to do, to neighbor people. Now in closing, last thing. Where do we find the motivation to live this way? Because if we're honest, we're all a little bit selfish. We're all a little bit self-centered. We're all a little bit busy. We're all a little bit limited. Where do we find, what is the uniquely Christian motivation to be a neighbor? In John chapter 1, verse 14, I love how this verse reads in the message. It should be on the screen. Look at this. It says, the word. Now, the word is a metaphor for Jesus. So whenever you see the word, think Jesus here. The word became flesh and blood. He became human. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this next phrase. And he moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory. Like father, like son. Generous inside and out from start to finish. Jesus, the king who left his throne, who left his neighborhood, so to speak, in heaven to move into our neighborhood, to neighbor us. And like the good Samaritan, he found us in a pretty bad spot, didn't he? 
But we weren't half dead, according to scripture. We were full dead, all the way dead in our sins, without any hope, without any chance of rescue, without any way to call out for rescue. And Jesus came to us, and he found us, and he rescued us, and he poured oil and wine on our wounds, and he bandaged us up, and at great expense to himself, he brought us to health and to wholeness. At great expense to himself. Jesus Christ neighbored us by going to the cross, giving his life for us, to set us free from stuff, to set us free from selfishness so we can be neighbors. Remind your heart this morning, when Jesus saw you on the side of the road, dead in your sin, he didn't pass you by. He didn't come for a closer look and then walk past you. He came near. He wrapped his arms around you. He pulled you close and he loved you. He is where your help comes from and he saved you. And when you know, not just in your head, but in your heart, that Jesus neighbored you, you'll be so eager to neighbor other people. You'll be so ready to give, even if it costs you something, because Jesus did so much for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning.